I think we've got a slideshow today, which is exciting. Ah, <laughs> um, <coughs> oh yeah. I always I always pick file sizes which are too big, which I think is the bane of every. Uh, there we go. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> I'll get to this anyway. T- traditionally, there are two big celebrations in the life of the church, at least in the life of churches like ours. Um, the first is Christmas, and the second is Easter. So those are the two big events, if you like, the big calendar events. And if we put those two festivals into narrow theological boxes, we could say that Christmas is the the feast of the incarnation of Christ, and Easter is the feast of the atonement. And in some sense, both of these celebrations, these two celebrations, are ways to help us remember God's reconciling work in history, like we were talking about last week. Um, the first one being the moment he became part of his creation, um, and the second, you know, being the the moment when he cleansed the world of sin. And like I shared last week, I, I think that God desires that we would be a remembering people, people who are remembering all the time, all of the things he's done. And these feasts are powerful ways that Christians over the years have done this. And that's why we've decided this year, I think for the first time, to to reflect a little bit on two more. So the Feast of the Ascension, which is actually was happening on Thursday, and um, Pentecost next week. These two events, particularly the Ascension, get relatively little airtime in our churches. We don't get any days off work for the Ascension or Pentecost. I think that might be part of it. <laughs> no one tries to sell us anything on Ascension Day. <laughs> Um, yeah, which is a, a blessing. Uh, however, I think, yeah, w- in a sense, we we do neglect these events. We we neglect them, and we become forgetful people around these uh, around the significance of what they mean. When we do that, we inevitably end up with a stunted version of the gospel. We end up with a truncated story, which misses out some important bits. As uh, Cherith Nordling puts it, in a Great quote. She says, as, as surely as the ascended Jesus disappeared from the disciples' sight, his ascension has disappeared from much of the church's vision and identity. Without our eyes set on our exalted king, we look to fill the void with our best efforts and self-projections. Though our language and worship and creed speaks of Jesus as king and lord, ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, we're not too sure how to speak about what he's doing and why it matters. When he drops out of sight, so too do the radical implications of his ongoing life for and with us. So, yeah, I think probably for most of us, last Thursday or this Thursday passed without any real thoughts about the ascension, Yet it marked 40 days since Easter Sunday, last Thursday, and thus it's Ascension Day. And it's, in a sense, it's not surprising that we've forgotten it, I think. It's a really strange story. It's a very odd story. It's um, probably one of the strangest moments in the whole New Testament, I'd say. Um, we may sort of wonder why Luke chose to close his gospel with this weird story of Jesus levitating up into the clouds. Um, 
I guess for us moderns, it feels a little bit um, embarrassing or something like that, perhaps. I don't know. Um, it seems to also break from the kind of, I guess, the realism of, of the Gospels. It all of a sudden feels a little bit fantastical. Uh, and, you know, it's no wonder, I guess, it's been a, a little bit of a source of, of um, mockery um, inside and outside the church. Um, this idea that, you know, well, I think it was Yuri, I can't remember his last name, but the first person into space, supposedly, I don't think he ever did, but said, there's no God up here. Um, so it's kind of this seen as a ridiculous thing I, from, from outside of the church. And yet the ascension is this unavoidable reality. It's not only unavoidable in terms of its place in scripture, but it's... It, it, can you all read that? <laughs> no, that's right. Um, it's it's right there in the heart of of our of our creeds: the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's right there throughout all of it. So, given that these creeds were formed by the early church as a as a way of basically distilling the essence of the gospel, so that we would not forget, I think we can be we can conclude that this is something Christians ought to think about, ought to meditate on, ought to consider, ought to believe. And it's an important part of Jesus' story, and it's an important part of our story, whatever our thoughts or feelings about it. So this morning I want to get a bit theological with you all um, and talk about the ascension and explain how the, how the ascension explains what Jesus is doing now and why that matters. So to begin... We'll start with Luke's account. He he actually um, tells us about the ascension twice. So he tells it at the end of his gospel, and then he repeats the story again at the beginning of Acts. Maybe there's something to that. I'm not sure. Anyway, in Luke, he says, Then he, Jesus, led them, the disciples, out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. And then, so that's the end of Luke's gospel. And then we turn to the start, and I won't read the whole thing, but basically Luke says, in the, in the first volume, I talked about all that Jesus did up until the point that he ascended. And then he says, um, so while staying with them, he ordered his disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And I think Liz next week will talk a little bit more about that. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. While, when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing up towards heaven. Suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So, a few questions. <laughs> why, 
why did Jesus have to leave? Why couldn't he have just stayed? Um, you know, at first glance, it doesn't really feel like a great plan. He's, you know, been resurrected and then he disappears. <laughs> um, wouldn't it have been easier to, to, for people to put their trust in Jesus if he'd just been available to go and visit, go and talk to, go and interview? Um, you know, wouldn't it have been easier for Jesus to disavow the people who so sort of speak in on his name to say, that's not, they're not with me? Um, wouldn't it have been easier? Um, and didn't the disciples have a good point in their question, you know, about restoring the kingdom of God now? Like, is now the time they're going to restore the kingdom of God? I don't think it's a bad question. I mean, we can only look at the news and think, what would Gaza look like today if Jesus was setting up his kingdom there? And there are many more questions that these narratives raise, <coughs> but perhaps what's more important, I think, for us today is to think about what the ascension of Jesus does tell us. So, and it's important, again, I'm just going to do a little bit of a fly over the Old Testament because, because Luke when we're reading the Gospel of Luke, we're reading someone who's operating in a bicultural context. And so we kind of need to have bifocal lenses. We need to have our Western lenses and we need to have our Jewish lenses on in order to really get what he's talking about. So from a Jewish point of view, it's, um, it's pretty helpful to remember that... Oh, I think I've lost a slide somewhere. Here we are. The, that in the Old Testament, basically there's... The, the universe has like a three a, a three tiered system. You have heaven, which is God's space, it's only for God. You have earth, which is the place of living things, living creatures like us. And then you have Sheol, which is the place of dead things. Um, and Psalm 115 expresses that pretty succinctly. It says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord nor to any that go down into silence. So there we have the three levels. That, that, that's the cosmology that Luke's audiences are operating in. From a Jewish point of view then, there's no expectation that someone would go from earth to heaven, from human space to God space. There's just no, no conception of that. Um, that place was reserved for God and for his angels. And this means that any report of a human ascending into heaven would have been seen not only as kind of extraordinary, but more as like an unholy intrusion into God's space. It's sort of seen as like an invasion into heaven. So the, um, the classic idea of this is seen in the Tower of Babel story, where, where humans gather together to attempt to sort of invade heaven, make a great name for themselves by building this tower which ascends into heaven. Um, I think that's what great picture by Bruegel. Um, so kings of the ancient Near East, and actually when I was thinking about it, pretty much every ruler, everywhere, every time, um, likes to kind of make propaganda about themselves that tells everyone around them about how they're basically the greatest thing ever. And, um, you know, they belong somewhere up in the upper echelon near the gods or with the gods. And the Jews really um, found this hard to handle. So they wrote a lot of poetry that was like just takedowns of, um, of these ancient Near Eastern kings. One of them is um, this, this 
condemnation, I guess, from Isaiah of the king of Babylon, where he says, you know, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, sun of the dawn. You've been cast low to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. I will sit atop the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you're brought low down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So, so Isaiah is saying, you proud kings think that you can go into God's space. But when you try to do that, you're going to eat the dust. Um, <laughs> so that being said, so there's this kind of idea that, that heaven's God's space, the earth is our space, and we don't cross that line. That being said, there are a few exceptional cases in the Old Testament where people are kind of temporarily brought into God's space. So Moses is probably the real classic example where he ascends up Mount Sinai and he's with God. He's hearing from God, he's receiving from God, and he comes down the mountain to, to speak God's words to his people. And he's actually glowing. He has to wear a veil over his face because he's been in God's space. Um, and then there's also... Um, Example, I think in Isaiah, which is quite beautiful, where he talks about his commission, and he says, he sees this vision of the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the hem of his of his robe being filling the temple, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, "Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King." the Lord of hosts. So there's this temporary um, opening up of heaven that Isaiah sees, and his, imme his immediate reaction is, ah, oh, I don't belong here. Like, I can't, I can't stay here. I'm a man of unclean lips. Um, so there's a real, again, a real clear sense that heaven is God's space and the earth is human space. And there's a couple more examples in the Old Testament, which I won't go into, but Enoch and Elijah, both of whom um, have these kind of ascension-type things go on. But it's not actually clear where they go, just to say that. Enoch, it just says, he walked with God and was no more. And Elijah, it says, you know, a chariot took him away. Where did he go? I don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> don't have the answer to that one. Um, but the point is, in the Old Testament, there's a little bit of room towards this idea of ascension, but it's never really this idea that humans will go up on their own effort. Um, there's one final picture in the book of Daniel which is really important, and then, then I'll be leaving the Old Testament behind for a bit. Um, but uh, I think it's really important for us to keep this image from Daniel in mind. It's uh, this very apocalyptic image that he, he sees in a dream. What he sees are numerous like beasts coming out of uh, beasts coming out of the sea, like one after the other, all these scary, terrifying visions of beasts, um, and the beasts are attacking God's people and tormenting them. And then finally, God himself steps in to deal with this. And, and Daniel describes it this way. He says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and all the wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here we see uh, a picture of this figure, one like a son of man, one like a human, who ascends from the earth on clouds up to the Ancient of Days, up into God's space. And he's given something that for this exclusively monotheistic group of people was scandalous. He's given worship. The Son of Man is given worship. So this brings us back to the ascension of Jesus. With all of these images in mind, with all these thoughts, with all this sort of backdrop, this is where Luke was operating. This is the world he was writing in. When we read the story of the ascension without this Old Testament backdrop, it seems like a strange story. Uh, we focus on, I think, the wrong details in the story. We focus on like the levitating man, like how did that happen, where did he go? Um, we, it's less about location, it's more about exaltation. Another way of talking about ascension is to say it's the coronation of Christ, or it's the exaltation, or it's the glorification of Jesus. It's the moment when he receives God's glory and, and his seal of approval, I guess. Um, all of a sudden, when we think about this, we think about back to these images of the Old Testament, it all starts falling into place, I think. So how does Matthew's gospel end, for instance, with Jesus up on the mountain telling his followers, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So he's quoting Daniel. So too with Mark, in Mark's gospel, where Jesus is being cross-examined by the high priest before the crucifixion. The high priest asks, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus responds straight out of Daniel, I am. And you'll see the son of man coming on clouds of glory. So Jesus understood his role. He understood who he was in light of this vision of Daniel's. So the ascension is not just this quirky ending to the Gospel of Luke. It's actually, uh, it's at, it sits at the very heart of our hope, I think, at the very heart of our story. Jesus, God incarnate, has triumphed over sin and death. The beasts couldn't claim him. They couldn't keep him down. He was raised from death and resurrected as the first taste of God's new creation. And he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. So the implications of this, the so what for us this Sunday morning. Some of, I mean, they're numerous, but, but some of them Liz will, will probably fish out next week when she shares on Pentecost. But before we get to that, the sending of the Spirit and all of that, I want to return to th this earlier question I asked, what's Jesus doing right now? Like right in this moment, as we're all sitting here in our seats, Jesus is alive. He's doing things. Where is he? What's he doing right now? It's an important question to ask. And I mean, it's a funny one because we think, surely that's an obvious question, but it seems a strange one. We have a much, we're much more inclined to think, what did Jesus do? Or what will Jesus do in the future? What did he do in the past? Brilliant question. The focus, I think, is shown in, I was thinking about this, of this, what would Jesus do? I don't know if anyone remembers that phenomenon. 
<laughs> you know, if you ask yourself, I'm in a tricky situation, what would Jesus do? <laughs> Again, thinking back, it's like, what is Jesus doing? Is a better question there. I don't know if it would sell as many bangles, but um, <laughs> yeah. And I guess the other thing is, you know, I have a slide for this, but we, we're either thinking what would Jesus do in a sort of retrospective way, or we're thinking what would what what's going to happen in the future. We're kind of concerned about the future. We're kind of thinking about who's going to be in and who's going to be out, and you know, the sort of you see that in the kind of uh, left behind stuff. You know, this real anxious experience of waiting for what God, who's going to be in and out, and what's God going to do with the world. Neither of those things really give us much access to Jesus. We only have him in the present, really, don't we? He, he's, he is alive now, and he's working. So I guess speaking for myself, I think when I really think about it, it's much more comfortable to relegate Jesus either to the past or the, or the future. You know, it sort of gets me a little bit off the hook in the present. Um, the thought that he's really present to me right now, he's present to each of us right now, is confronting. And... I guess what what else is more, you know, he's he's not just have a slide. I don't know what it means. Anyway, what's more, he he's not just floating around the room, you know, he's not an ethereal spirit. He's not Casper the friendly ghost. Um, <laughs> he's he's when he was resurrected on Easter Sunday, when he came out of the tomb, he came out as a body. He came out as a, a man. His friends recognized him. He ate with them. He they touched him. They felt him. Um, he walked around, you know, he was with them as a person. And when he ascended, he didn't abandon his body on the way up and didn't sort of like take it off like a garment and leave it on the cloud somewhere. He ascended up as the resurrected, embodied Jesus. So, <coughs> and that is where he remains today. Not His body is not like a mandarin peel that can just be thrown away. It's part of who he is. He's fully human and fully divine, and he remains fully human and fully divine. Fully human in body, fully human in mind, fully human in will, fully human in emotion. It's kind of crazy. It means right now he's got eyes and eyebrows. <laughs> he's got lips. He's got teeth. He's got ears. Got ankles, kneecaps. He's <laughs> got nipples. He's got a belly button. Does this make us uncomfortable? <laughs> <laughs> it does make us uncomfortable, doesn't it? And it's funny because why is this the case? Why why do we get a bit ooh about this idea that Jesus is a body? He's got a body. He's got all these bits that we have. I think it's because, and it may, maybe it seems a bit vulgar or a bit crass to talk about Jesus in that way, but that's really because we've bought into this dualistic way of thinking where the spirit is good and pure and clean and the body is dirty and bad and corrupt. And this lives within us, whether we kind of have read Plato or not. <laughs> Most of us have never read Plato, but Plato's kind of somehow found its way into our brain. Jesus is human, and the resurrection and the ascension affirm this reality that Jesus remains fully God and fully human. His humanity was not something that he even wanted to shake off. There's another thought, you know, this idea that, oh, such a bummer for Jesus, he had to become a human. 
you know, were they like, did he pull the short straw when the Trinity was, was discussing, <laughs> like, oh, no, I'm going to be trapped in a human body for the rest of my life. No, he wants to be human, I think, speaking on his behalf. Um, you know, he, 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 the incarnation was not a plan B. You know, it was about his presence being among us. It was about him coming to be with us. That was always his heart. It's always been his heart to be with us. So this is an important part of the good news, I think, that we preach as Christians, the yes that God gives to our humanity, the yes and amen that God gives to, to has placed Jesus at the helm of the universe, a human, fully human, fully divine, but fully human man is at the helm of the universe. He's our representative right there at the core of things, one like us. Gregory of Nazianzus, speaking of, of Jesus' incarnation, said, that which is not assumed cannot be healed, which means basically if there's some part of us which Jesus hasn't assumed, which he hasn't encountered, which he hasn't brought into himself, which he hasn't participated in, then that remains outside of his redemptive work. Jesus has become fully human. He went all the way he participated in every part of human experience and every part of human life all the way to death, all the way to the cross. There was nothing held back in the incarnation. So that is what makes him our great high priest, as the author to the Hebrews talks about. He represents us to the Father. And he eliminates the gap that was there between humans and God, between God's space and human space. He is the vicarious one, the one who stands between the two spaces. So the ascension, um, yeah, it gives us confidence that we can say that, that Jesus is representing us to the Father. He's speaking on our behalf. He's our, he's our man, you know. He's our man up there. We're out there, <laughs> wherever heaven, whatever heaven is. <laughs> the ascension also shapes our, our proclamation and our demonstration of the gospel in the way that it it affirms the universal lordship of Jesus. He's not just king of Israel. He's king of the whole universe now. In a very real sense, Jesus was limited when he was walking around in Galilee and Palestine and Jerusalem. He was limited um, prior to the ascension of being in one place at one time. He came as Israel's Messiah, not as New Zealand's Messiah. He came as Israel's Messiah to fulfill the promises and covenants of the Old Testament, but he was raised and exalted as Lord over all creation. So the Feast of the Ascension is the moment we celebrate that there's no place, there's no person, there's no people group, there's no part of the universe that is not under his lordship. And that's what it means in the creeds where it says that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That doesn't mean he's like, I'm done. <laughs> take, take a load off. Um, sit down here. This looks comfortable. Sitting on my dad's hand. Um, <laughs> at, not on. Um, <laughs> he's seated. Um, that's ancient. I mean, that's kind of formal language. Seated like, you know, a sitting member of parliament. We use that language. You know, if someone's a sitting member of parliament, they're not, they're not, not doing anything. <laughs> they're working, you know, they're in session. So Jesus is in session. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. To use a meteorological pun, he 
we're all living under the reign of Christ. <laughs> so wherever we go, we're under the reign of Christ. There's, there's much to be said about the connection between Jesus' ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit, like I said, which Liz will, will no doubt um, touch on next week. But there's one other thing which I just wanted to mention or, or throw out there in terms of our, how the ascension shapes our understanding of who Jesus is, what he's doing right now, what this means for us. So throughout, throughout his letters, Paul, the Apostle Paul, emphasizes this idea of, of the Christian life being hidden in Christ. He uses the language of in Christ a lot. So that it's no longer we who live, but it's, you know, us, it's, it's, um, it's Christ who lives in us. And it's a simple sounding thing, but it's kind of a complex idea. And it can, I think it can lead to misconceptions, again, about what it means um, in terms of Jesus' embodied life. We talk about things like accepting Jesus into our heart as a way of explaining the glitter in my veins and Jesus in my heart. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, Jesus is in my heart, Jesus lives in my heart. What does that mean? Um, you know, because Jesus is not, like I said, he's not just a floating around spirit thing. He's a man. How's he getting there? Um, <laughs> and I guess, you know, when we talk about, I'm not saying it's wrong to say that, obviously. Um, but I'm saying that, that these are complex ideas that we can sort of rattle off without really thinking through. So when Paul talks about being in Christ, he, what he means is that by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are united with Christ right now. All of us as people, as individuals, but us as a church, we are seated with Christ. Um, the Holy Spirit is the, is the anticipation of that. It's the first down payment. It's the first taste of the age to come. The promise when we'll be completely transformed. And right now we only do experience a little taste of that. We taste the future, but we're still waiting in eager anticipation for that fullness to be realized. Um, and I, I, I guess I think, I'm thinking about myself, but probably thinking about us in general, we tend to teeter away from that hope too quickly, I think. Um, we live as if the future is this abstract thing that's way out there, you know. It's never going to happen in my lifetime. So it's sort of up to me. Jesus has ascended. He's left us. So I've got to work it out on my own now. Um, I know he's coming back, but, you know, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So it's up to me to make my life work, you know. It's up to me to take control. However, the, as we, yeah, Paul counters this tendency, I think, in us. He must have seen it in his friends at the church in Ephesus. He must have seen it with the Colossians as well. He quotes, um, to quote him, he says, God, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, using present language. We're seated with Christ. We're ascended with Christ right now. And again, to the Colossians writing, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So I guess, yeah, an invitation in the ascension for us to meditate on as a people and as individuals is where is our hope, you know, and, and the ascension roots our hope in Jesus. Uh, and as a people, we can experience, you know, obviously I don't want to like be triumphalistic about this, but in a sense, we can experience the ascension. We can experience the presence of God. Um, Anyway, that's all I'll say about that. Anyway, I believe I believe this is why the the creeds again connect. Whenever that mentions the ascension, it always mentions his return. 
So he's seated at the right hand of God and he will return to judge the living and the dead. And yeah, I guess that's what the angels had to say to the disciples of Galilee as well. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So a little bit of a mysterious and exciting anticipation. We experience it now and we look forward to it in its fullness. Summing up, what does this all mean to us? Um, well, right now, as we're sitting here, Jesus is reigning. He's reigning as Lord over all creation, even if we feel like the world's chaotic, and if we look at the leaders of various nations. And Jesus is Lord. He's reigning. And that ought to fundamentally change our outlook on everything. It ought to change our outlook on economics, politics, ecology. It ought to change everything the way we think about Um Jesus right now is interceding on our behalf to the Father. He's not like pleading against like to an angry God who wants to smite us, but he's representing us and saying, "These are my brothers and sisters, and they're with me." You know, and he's he's bringing us to the Father right now. Even experientially, we can begin to f experience that welcome of God. Jesus remains fully human. And will return fully human. I know I'm thrashing a dead horse with that one, but it's um, you know, he he is human like us. Therefore, our bodies matter. The planet matters. Um, we we can join in and and celebrating and restoring creation, because not because it's trendy or not because it's important, but but because it matters to God. Our bodies matter. Um, it, it, the ascension should help us to love our bodies. That might be probably the hardest thing of all for some of us. It might be the hardest thing of all to realize that God has made us. He's put us in bodies, and these bodies are good. He's present to us right now through the power of the Holy Spirit to each of us. And he will return, and we will see him face to face one day. So, doesn't that make us want to worship? Lloyd, would you, would you lead us from here? And I'll just pray and then hand it over to you.